Hi, everybody. My name is Peter Diamandis. I'm here with my coach, my dear friend, Dan Sullivan. And this is an episode of Exponential Wisdom. Dan, it's a pleasure. We're recording this during COVID-19 and using the technology of the day to connect us. I think you're in Toronto right now, aren't you? I'm in Toronto. And it's really great to talk to you, Peter, because I first learned about you because of your interest in outer space. And we've had remarkable breakthroughs just within the last week on space and the opening of space. And I think it's America full born into space after quite a delay since the Apollo mission. Yeah, and I'm broadcasting from Allen Island up here in the San Juans near Seattle. This past week, we saw the return of Dragon to Earth after a couple of months in orbit. And let's take a sense, quick sort of status check of where we are in the space program Mm -hmm. and maybe a quick history and then where we're going, which is the real interesting thing. So October 4th, 1957, the Soviet Union launches Sputnik. It catches the U.S. off guard. The first satellite going beep, beep, beep in orbit around the Earth. The U.S. comes back with a satellite, you know, in 1958. Then on April 12th, 1961, the Soviet Union again bests the United States, this time with Yuri Gagarin as the first orbital astronaut. We shoot up Alan Shepard in a small suborbital hop, and then John Glenn goes to orbit. This is May 1961, thereabouts. We then declare, this is JFK's famous speech, I challenge this nation to go to the moon point of the decade and return humans safely back to Earth. And we did. 1969, we go to the moon. It's an extraordinary journey. We did it at a speed unbeknownst to anybody that we could be doing that. And Apollo 11 lands, 12 lands, 13 does not. Incredible movie. 14, 15, 16. And then in December of 1972, the last mission, Gene Cernan and Jack Schmidt step off the moon in December 1972, come back. We actually had Apollo 18 and 19 built The entire vehicles were built, and all you do is fuel them to go to the moon. But America had lost interest in space at that point, and we didn't go. We had a joint program with the Soviets. This was the Apollo-Soyuz program. And the last time a capsule landed on the ocean under parachutes was that Apollo-Soyuz second mission, or third mission. This is 1975. We then spend about six, seven years building the space shuttle, which launches on, you guessed it, April 12th, 1981. The space shuttle program was supposed to be super cheap, $50 million a launch. Dan, you know how much it costs per launch at the end of the day? Not 50 million. You want to give me a number? Uh, Maybe 500. (laughs) Well, the number was somewhere between 1 billion and 4 billion per launch. Wow. Yeah, incredible. The cost of the entire shuttle program was $4 billion to $5 billion. And if you launched one shuttle, it cost 4 or $5 billion for that one launch. Mm-hmm. If you launched four, which was like the max we launched per year, it was like a billion a launch. It was insanely expensive. And that program lasted for a while. And when it ended, and listen, the space shuttle was a beautiful vehicle, very complex, very expensive. It was a space truck that really never found its way. It was supposed to be a joint civilian and military vehicle. Anyway, when it ended, we had no way of getting humans into space. And so we cut a deal with the Russians. Now the Soviet Union becomes Russia, and we're flying on the Soyuz, which carries three people up. We had launched the space station in partnership with Russia, the U.S., Europeans, Japanese. 
And we're going up and back and forth. In fact, one of the companies I co-founded, Space Adventures, was able to buy a extra seat on the capitalist Russian Soyuz vehicle. And we launched eight people, or we did eight private launches, seven people, one person, Charles Simone from Microsoft, the creator of Word and Excel, went twice. He loved it so much. And then finally, we created the commercial space program and we gave contracts to launch humans to a couple of companies, SpaceX and Boeing. What a heck of a job SpaceX has done, right? Mm -hmm. Elon is brilliant. I was there at the earliest times I met him when he just sold PayPal to eBay. He had $140 million in his pocket. He spent $100 million of it to develop SpaceX. All his money up front, risking it. The other money went into Tesla. Ultimately, what he did with SpaceX, I mean, he built what was called the Falcon 1. It was a small launcher with a single Falcon engine. And the expectation was that he'd get it to work on the first, second, or third launch. He had budgeted for three launches, you know, two failures and a success, and the first three all failed. We forget about that. Right? We forget that there was a sequence of failures in this process. Mm-hmm. And he had to cobble together, borrow money, beg and steal from his, not steal, but beg from his friends, and he got enough money for a fourth. And on the fourth launch, and I was there for it, not physically, I was at his mission control, it succeeded, and it was amazing. And based on that success, he got a contract for a billion dollars to build Falcon 9, which was a vehicle with nine of the engines, not just one. And, you know, the rest is history. He went from Falcon 9 being the most economic to being, you know, the most super economic because he started being able to land, reland, and reuse the first stage, which was, you know, 60% of the cost. Then he started capturing the clamshell heat shields for the fairing. And, you know, I remember when he landed the first stage of Falcon 9, I said that's a final nail in the coffin for the other aerospace companies. There's no way going to catch up. Mm-hmm. One last thing, you know, Dragon finally carried humans to NASA astronauts to the space station for two months, landed it safely. Beautiful mission, picture perfect. And, you know, Boeing has their own version I forget what it's called, probably not very exciting as a name, but they've spent three times as much money and they've never flown anything of significance yet. Mm -hmm. So the other player out there, of course, is Jeff Bezos. Very proud of the fact I go back with Jeff 35, 40 years to college. I was running a student space organization, MIT, and he was president of the chapter at Princeton. But Jeff's been in space his entire life and he's got Blue Origin where he's committed a billion dollars a year. End of the day, it's going to be a SpaceX on one end and Blue Origin on the other. But it's no longer a government game in my mind. The government might fund it, but this is a commercial game of commercial ingenuity. Mm-hmm. That was a quick history. The interesting yeah. thing, and really a lot of my insight really comes from you on the significance of what he's done with the returnable boosters. The whole point, and do you have any sense of how many times you can use a booster And according to his estimation? I think he's budgeting 10. 10, yeah. And that yeah. means that the cost of the program just went from 500% down to uh, 20%, maybe 20%. I'll give you some of the numbers. So the shuttle we talked about before cost between a billion to $4 billion per launch. The Russian Soyuz which is a similar type vehicle as Falcon 9. The Russian Soyuz carries three seats. The Falcon 9 has seven seats on board, by the way, on the Dragon. 
So the Russian Soyuz, you could estimate it like $100 million a launch, but it's a throwaway vehicle. And so we used to charge 30, eventually $50 million per seat to go to the space station for a week using one of those Soyuz seats. It turns out that you can estimate the cost of a vehicle, the cost of operating a vehicle, as three times the cost of a fuel. So I have a 727 that I fly people in zero G on, right? Flown Stephen Hawking. That's a fun story we should talk about sometime again. So the cost of that 727 to operate about three times the cost of the fuel. So if you look at your car, if you have a gasoline car or a boat, a good rough estimate is three times the cost of a fuel. If it's all reusable. So let's use the Soyuz. It's $100 million launch. So first of all, one question, what percentage of the rocket do you consider to be fuel? What's your guess? What percentage of the rocket's weight is fuel? I don't know, 80, 90%. Yeah, about that. It's a little bit north of 90%. Yeah. And what percentage of a launch cost do you think is fuel? 80 or 90 million. (laughs) Nope. No, depending on what the uh, total launch cost is. If you're talking about a billion, it's probably seven or eight hundred million. Actually, it's under one percent. Really? The cost of the fuel for a Soyuz. Oh, the cost of the fuel. Yeah. Yeah, is like that would be the same for SpaceX. The shuttle or SpaceX. It's like a half a million dollars. So the entire system costs a hundred million dollars. The fuel is a half a million dollars. Yeah. Which is insane. Yeah. Right, because it's the fact that you throw away the entire vehicle that makes it so expensive. Expensive, And it's the cost of the labor to build it and all the overview and all of that. So if it's three times the cost of fuel, then you should be able to say, all right, the cost per flight should be a million and a half bucks. So that's what we could get to with fully reusable systems. You know, three people, million and a half bucks, half a million dollars a person to go to orbit. Not bad. Yeah. You can also calculate the amount of energy it takes to launch you into space. Mm -hmm. I'll take you back to your high school math here. To get from the surface of the Earth to 200 kilometers, it's a good orbital altitude, is mgh, mass times gravity times height, is the amount of energy. And then to get to orbital velocity, you know, about 25,000 kilometers per hour, the equation is one-half mv squared, one-half times your mass times the velocity squared. Anyway, long story short, that's the amount of energy to get to altitude and accelerate your orbital speed. And if you could buy it out of the plug in your home from Toronto Power and Light, let's say it's seven cents a kilowatt hour, what is your guess to launch you and your spacesuit into orbit if you could do it super efficiently at seven cents a kilowatt hour? And let's say it took you an hour. Mm -hmm. Okay. What's your total guess in U.S. dollars? Let's call it that. I don't know. It's in the hundreds of thousands, probably, for the whole thing. You're talking just about the human, right? If I could lift you, let's say, what do you weigh, pal? 180. 180. Okay, 180. Yeah, so 185 plus another spacesuit. So double your weight, you know, 350 pounds to get you and your spacesuit winch you up in a super efficient and then accelerate you efficiently electrically and did that off of the grid. What's the total electrical cost for that? Pick a number. Any number. This is kind of a documentary on Dan as Professor Diamandis' punching bag. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to get the punchline. It's, rid- it's a ridiculous yeah. number. This is a coach as a punching bag. No, 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 no. This is the fact that it makes no sense. I would say that it's probably the same cost from flying from Toronto to Los Angeles. Probably it's 120 bucks. 
It's 120 bucks. 120, I can't fly to LA. Okay, 500 free. bucks. It depends what airline yeah. you use. But the point is that we have so many efficiencies from like billions of dollars in the space shuttle yeah. to 50 million in the Soyuz to if it was fully reusable, 1.5 million. And if it was efficient electrically, you know, a couple hundred bucks. Anyway, a lot of improvement coming yeah. is what I'm saying for us to get into space. Yeah. Well, the thing that I want to take you back to, Peter, is, you know, everybody talks about Mars and Moon because that's what all the movies are about. But it's really the asteroid mining that now becomes really possible. And you were right in on the ground level with actually making that a private financial reality. Because the big thing is that whereas the Moon or the Mars cannot be claimed as territory by individuals, asteroid scan. Yeah, I joined with a few friends of mine, Eric Anderson and Chris Lewicki, and we started a company years back called Planetary Resources. Remember Chris really well. He was mission control. Fortunately, I had him join Strategic Coach for a number of years. Yes, Chris is amazing. I met him at SEDS, the same place I met Bezos, and he worked for me at a company called Blastoff, and then Went to JPL. He was program manager on two of the Mars missions, Spirit and Opportunity. Incredible engineer, stole him out of JPL. We capitalized the company. Now, here was the mistake I made. Space companies are really expensive. So next time I start my space company, you need to do it like what Elon did, where you have $100 million of your own money to kick it off. You know, we capitalized. We raised about $40 million in total. We had incredible investors in the company, a lot of Silicon Valley elite. But... When it came down to it, the mission to get to the first asteroid and begin the process of laying claim, and we got the laws passed in the U.S. and also in Luxembourg, it was a couple hundred million dollars, and we had one Chilean mining company was going to lead our Series B, and they pulled out the last minute because they had a really bad down quarter, and that basically killed the financing, and we ended up selling the company and it's basically in, I was saying quarantine, that's the word of the <laughs> of the summer, but in mothballs right now. But yeah. I want to come back to it once I've got the ability to fully capitalize it myself. It's like the gold rush. Yeah. These asteroids have two significant value. People think about asteroids from a strategic metals, right? And they're very rich. Peter, in- can you just give people some sense of how many asteroids they are that sure. are within... Achievable range, let's say achievable range, and it would make it worth your while to actually land on one of these. Yeah, so there's two major categories of asteroids. There's asteroids that are between Mars and Jupiter. It's called the asteroid belt. Tens of millions. I mean, depends what you call. Is it a pebble? Is that an asteroid? Is it a rock a meter in size? You know, at a meter in size and larger, there are tens of millions. There are hundreds of asteroids that are kilometers in size. But then there are these near-Earth asteroids, these asteroids that are on orbits that are weird, strange. They come near the Earth. They're in parallel orbits around the Earth. They're caught in Earth, Moon, Earth, Sun, Lagrange points. And these are much closer energetically. In space terms, you don't talk about how far something is. You talk about delta V, the amount of velocity change it takes to get, how much energy you have to invest to get to it. So something can be far away, but if you just need a gentle push and you keep going, keep going, you get there eventually, the delta V is low. And so when we were looking at the asteroids, we looked at lots of them and we found a dozen that were out of the tens of millions, a dozen that were the 
highest value. They were energetically close. They were low spin rate. They were large enough. They were made of the stuff that we're interested in. It was like, you know, real estate, location, location, location. (laughs) (laughs) And there were two aspects of asteroids that we were interested in. The one most people would think about is precious metals. In this case, it's platinum group metals, platinum, palladium, osmium, rubidium. And these are rare metals. They're not rare earths, but they're called platinum group metals. And they've got super high melting points. And we came up with very unique ways to retrieve the metals and bringing those metals back to the Earth's surface where they're usable. But that's expensive to do, possible. The other thing that's of value in asteroids, and people wouldn't think about this, it's water. Mm -hmm. Water is one of the most valuable things in space for two reasons. One, it's important for humans. It makes great radiation shielding as well because of a low atomic number. It doesn't splatter high-energy subatomic particles when they're hit by cosmic rays. But the other reason is you can take water and, using solar energy, break it into hydrogen and oxygen, which is rocket fuel. Mm -hmm. And so these asteroids are basically the potential for refueling stations. Well, the thing is you have water, you have oxygen, and you have fuel. Three things that you are a scarcity issue if you're shipping it from Earth become an abundant issue if it's already there. 100%. And so we will have asteroid mining. The other place you can get water and oxygen is from the surface of the moon. It turns out that the moon's regolith is rich in silicon, which is great for the regolith. I mean, the dust, the sand on the moon's surface, it's called regolith rich in silicon, which you can use for solar cells, nickel and iron for building materials, and oxygen, which you can extract using processes. But it turns out in the North and South Pole, particularly in the South Pole of the Moon, where the sun never shines, and it's not a proctology joke, uh, (laughs) but it turns out that when asteroids hit the Moon, so asteroids and comets are very rich in water ice. Just an aside here. When the Earth was formed four and a half billion years ago, it was a molten rock. And there was no water on the Earth's surface, none. It was only after the Earth cooled and there was this period called the bombardment period where the Earth was just bombarded, just pummeled over and over again by comets and asteroids. As those rocks hit and a large number of them were water ice, the ice stayed on the surface of the Earth and every ounce Every milliliter, if you're metric, of water on the planet's surface has come from asteroids and comets. Everything you drink, everything you swim in came from space. Interesting fact. Mm -hmm. And it stayed on the surface because the Earth had cooled and because we had formed an atmosphere. On the moon, where there was no atmosphere, any ice that landed on the surface that was then hit by the sun sublimated. It went from ice to gas, and because the moon's gravity is low, it just escaped into space. But ice that fell into the deep craters on the south pole or north pole of the moon that were perpendicular to the sun never saw the sunlight. And so these permanently shadowed craters have, as we've just been able to find just within the last 10 years, large amounts of ice. And so there's a very famous crater called Shackleton's Crater after the great explorer Shackleton, which, Mm -hmm. yeah, good name. Was he Canadian or just a good explorer? He was a Brit. He was a Brit. A Brit. You can use me as a punch in your bag when it comes to history, dude. Yeah. Uh, All day long. So anyway, we can get ice from there as well. 
So a couple of fun facts to think about here. So where do we go next? <laughs> We've got the U.S. now flying the Falcon Dragon to the space station. Mm-hmm. We've got the Russians flying the Soyuz. We've got the Chinese flying their Taikonauts and planning to put up a mission to the moon. We've got robotic missions on the lunar surface with China right now, with a couple of missions there. We've got a number of missions in route to Mars. The UAE, United Arab Emirates, just flew a mission on their 50th anniversary. It's on its way to Mars right now. It, it flew on a Japanese launch vehicle just a month ago. So, But what about humans? Well, and then you have the latest American one that has the helicopters. So that's going to be interesting. It has the little helicopter. Oh, yes, of course. The uh, Perseverance thing, it's called. I apologize if I've forgotten the name wrong for our listeners. I shouldn't. But, the Amanus um, 100 Sullivan <laughs> 1. <laughs> Listen, I'm a space cadet. My nickname my fraternity was Pete in Space. Yeah. But if you abbreviate that, it didn't work so well. <laughs> So anyway, so where are we going now? Well, it's interesting to think about where does Musk want to go? Where does Bezos want to go? So the U.S. government, NASA, wants us to go back to the moon. And I think that's a smart, you know, set up the infrastructure to go to the moon and to go there reliably. And if we can get to the moon and use it as a launch base and set up permanent human colonies there, that would be awesome. So Bezos wants to go to the moon. He grew up mentored by the same person I did, Gerard K. O'Neill, Princeton professor, who spoke about going to the moon for resources. Asteroids were out of reach for him back then, but the moon was not. And then from the moon, there are two options. Musk wants to go to Mars and settle Mars. And there are reasons to do that, but a lot of reasons not to as well. You're going back into a deep gravity well. The Martian surface has got a lot of peroxides, which are very toxic chemicals to humans. And then it's just harder to get there. When you're on the moon, you're 2.4 seconds speed of light round trip time delay. So you can communicate versus waiting 20 minutes, depending on where Mars is in the Earth-Mars orbital cycles. And then Bezos wants to go from the moon to create these O'Neill colonies. And O'Neill colonies are a beautiful idea. You build these large tubes maybe a kilometer in diameter, and you build them from asteroidal material or lunar material, mostly asteroidal material, and you rotate them. And as they're rotating, they create centripetal acceleration, and you live on the inside of the tube. And if the tube's a kilometer in diameter, you don't really notice the Coriolis effects on your vestibular system. And you live on the middle, and each of these tubes could have a million or 10 million citizens in it living inside. Mm -hmm. Jeff talks about a population of humanity of a trillion people living in free space. And the advantage of these O'Neill colonies are because you're in orbit around the sun, you're not on the surface of a planet, you can easily get off them. You can go to the center of rotation where gravity is zero and go out the axis and then you're floating in space. So a lot. Add AI and robotics and a lot of these things become possible, not in 50 years, maybe the next, you know, 30 years, 20 years. You know, when I was growing up on a farm in northern Ohio, I had a next door neighbor. In 1950, I was six and she was 78. So I was talking to her one day and she brought me over for cookies and milk. And I would ask her a lot of questions. That's where I got on my question asking start. And I said, when you were 
my age at six, did you know somebody who was 78? Talk to somebody who's 78. And it turns out she didn't talk to him, but she knew somebody who was born in 1795. Oh my God. Wow. 1795. And I was sitting there and I was talking to someone who had talked to somebody who was born in the 18th century, end of the 18th century. So let's take it forward, Peter, and say we're probably within our lifetime, and we both have extended notions of our lifetime, but we'll talk to people who will go into space and never come back, and they'll have children who will be humans, but not Earth people. I completely believe that, pal. I think whatever we evolve into a thousand years from now, 10,000 years from now, we will look back at this next decade or two as a moment in time that the human race irreversibly moved off of the surface into space. I think that's true, yeah. And there's only one time that's ever happened in life, in one sense, is when the lungfish crawled out of the oceans onto land, Mm -hmm. right? As a beautiful thought, and then blossomed this whole kingdoms and such. All the primates of the entire animal kingdom. kingdom. Yeah, and it's interesting because I'm just looking, you know, and this is a very earthbound example, but in my lifetime, so I was born in 44, I've never experienced a five-month period where I had a sense that an entire population had shifted to a new technology Hmm. and did it comfortably. You know, I mean... Just the numbers of virtual communicators, virtual teamwork, virtual collaboration has just shifted suddenly in five months. So I said, you know, if you got the right conditions and you have the right economics, you can really make a big shift. And it can be done on a global basis, not on you know, a local basis or regional or national basis. It is extraordinary. It speaks to the agility of the human race right now. And that agility, it's enabled by technology. You know, the speed at which we adopt the new, we're being trained more and more. Mm-hmm. I think about my nine-year-old boys as they adopt to new technologies. It's like, oh, this is possible now, that becomes normal. Now this is possible and this becomes normal. Yeah, And it's amazing. Well, the other thing, you know, and it's one of our great things is that we forget things really quickly too. <laughs> no, no, I mean, the, you know, I was thinking... A topic today when we were talking about our podcast today is Joseph Schumpeter, who is the author of the term creative destruction, as it applies to entrepreneurs. He says entrepreneurs are the agents in society who bring about creative destruction. Their innovations actually make existing structures obsolete and they create new structures that are more advanced, more valuable to other people. The things that have been put at risk, you know, that are old structures in the last five months, we could do a hundred podcasts on the topic and it would still be interesting. And we, and we should, you know, I think about it and I think we've talked about this a little bit before that what's happened with COVID-19 is the third of four asteroid impacts. And I talk about that, you know, 65, 66 million years ago, an asteroid hit the earth it changed the environment so fast that anybody that wasn't agile died. It just shook everything up. And that was the asteroids went extinct. The one near Belize, right? Yes. And the furry mammals, which were us, which were agile, were able to survive and dominate the planet. 
The second asteroid impact that has shaken up the planet is exponential technologies, and that's what our podcast bars its name from. A lot of the work that Ray Kurzweil, a dear friend and co-founder of Singularity University, talks about. And, you know, computation sensors, networks, AI, robotics, 3D printing, AR, VR, blockchain, all these technologies have shaken up industry so much that there has been wholesale extinction of many different companies, industries, ways of, of providing services and products. The third asteroid impact in this sequence is COVID-19. Mm-hmm. COVID-19, because of the extent of this, has like literally, I imagine a table of Legos, Lego structures, and it just shook the entire table. And anything that was on half ground just crumbled. Mm-hmm. And then it's those Lego blocks on the ground are what entrepreneurs can pick up and rebuild stuff with, mm-hmm. right? Opportunity. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth one that's coming that people don't speak about enough is AI. You know, we're going to start seeing in the next three to five years, and we've talked about it, and we should do, obviously, another podcast on this, is by the end of this decade, there are two kinds of companies, those that are fully utilizing AI and those that are bankrupt. Well, I would say right now, on a much smaller test, that within my own client base, there are holdouts that simply aren't adapting over to virtual communication. And they're holding out because they're out of it. You know, like I can really see they haven't made the switch. You know, they say, well, I won't do a strategic coach workshop unless it's in person. Mm. And I said, well, there's going to be lots of opportunities that you're missing because there's going to be twice as many virtual workshops. And you're going to find the experience is actually superior in about five or six ways that I can lay out for you right now and a year from now, I really know. But they're not even using virtual within their own companies with their own clients. I said, you know, your clients and customers will immediately gravitate towards the services that are virtual. And if you're not at least knowledgeable and at least borderline capable, you're going to be left behind. Well, that's just one little technology when you think about it. I mean, I think virtual technology, the way we have it right now is it's a big deal. It's a really big deal. But the thing that you're talking about is at an exponentially greater level. So there's a few fun topics we could talk about in our next podcast. We can talk about the virtual transportation breakthrough, which we're doing now, Mm -hmm. medical disruption, education disruption. Which one do you want to pick next? What's your choice? Well, I think it's a topic that's very, you know, You've been with it for your whole life. So I would talk about the medical disruption that's happened. All right. Yeah, because I've really noticed it because I live in two different systems. I live in the Canadian system. I live in the American system. And there is an American system. It just depends on which American system you're in. But it's really, really interesting talking to my doctors because I've been doing that virtually and what their take on it. And these are not cutting edge technology doctors. These are doctors that, you know, have a specialty, but they've been enormously transformed in the last five months by telemedicine. Awesome. All right. Well, let's wrap up this conversation on space. I hope everyone's enjoyed it near and dear to my heart. I'm going to be going back to the asteroids, not too distant future, but this time I'll go with enough money in my pocket where I can fund the darn thing myself. Dan, as always, a pleasure. Thank you. We'll see you in our next episode. Let's do it on disruption of the medical system and the new opportunities ahead. Thank you, Peter. Take care, pal.